Hello and welcome to My Biggest Lesson, the show that brings you the key learnings from the most influential founders, executives, and investors in the Colorado tech community. My name is Adam Burrows. And I'm Chris Erickson. Together, we are the co-founders of Range Ventures. An early stage venture firm based in Denver. You can find out more about what we're up to at range.vc. Our guest this week is Jack Morrison. Jack is the co-founder and CEO of Scythe Robotics, the leader in building automated robotic commercial lawnmowers. Super cool stuff. Jack has a ton of experience in robotics. He spent time in the PhD program at George Washington University and left academia to found a company called Replica Labs, which he sold to Occipital. He started Scythe in 2018, and the company now has over 50 employees and recently succeeded in closing its Series B. Jack, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Adam and Chris. Absolutely. Well, we'd love to hear a little bit more about your journey starting Scythe Robotics and how you became the guru of commercial robotic lawnmowers. <laughs> yeah. So we started Scythe in 2018, myself and my two co-founders, uh, Davis Foster and Isaac Roberts. So Isaac and I go way back. We started a 3D scanning company about nine years ago when I dropped out of a robotics PhD program. Uh, we sold that to another Colorado spatial computing company, got a chance to work alongside Davis building the future of 3D perception technology and, you know, while we're building some cool consumer-focused applications, we really felt like there were bigger opportunities for the perception, uh, you know, robotic vision technology that we were working on. And one day I sort of had a light bulb moment mowing my own lawn here in Colorado where it clicked for me that like, A, I really hate mowing. Uh, B, I'm not any good at it. My lines are terrible. I can't tell where I mowed before. Uh, and C, it just seemed really obvious that this would be a great application for robots. I mean, it's dull, uh, it's dirty, and it's shockingly dangerous, actually. So uh, we banded together and started Scythe in April 2018. It's been a, a wild nearly five years now. That's, that's amazing. And where are you at uh, right now? I know you guys have had some success on uh, various fundraising rounds and some, some great commercial traction. Yeah, we're building the, well, we just wrapped up actually building the fifth generation of M.52, our 52-inch stand-on autonomous commercial mower. We're getting started on the design of the sixth generation, starting to put more machines out in the field with customers and growing the team. Awesome. And just curious, in, in this world, Jack, how do you see the evolution of, of kind of the commercial side how long is it going to be until Chris and I can actually go do this in our backyards and realize your initial vision of uh, not having to go, you know, create terrible lines? Because <laughs> I'm no good at this either. Might be a while till we sell you guys one directly, uh, if ever. But, you know, I think there's a day in the next couple of years where there could be a landscaper with M.30, maybe a smaller autonomous mower. I don't know how big of a lawn you've got, but smaller autonomous mower in the front range area who comes to your property and, and mows the lawn. I think one of the things that really attracted us to mowing was not only that, you know, it, nobody else was really, frankly, tackling it, but it sort of hits that bar of a real pain point in the world that needs solving and these landscapers all can't find enough people to get the work done that they've got under contract and that's technologically feasible for automation today you know i 
seen a lot of people go out into say on-road self-driving cars where we're just starting after tens of billions of dollars and you know decades of development to see some deployments we're four and a half years into this already got machines fielded and it's just a much simpler de-scoped problem in a lot of ways so i think really quickly over the next few years we'll see more of our autonomous mowers especially and, and potentially others uh, out there solving this problem for landscapers in the world so Jack, you've been here in Colorado for almost a decade at this point. Would love to hear your perspective on how you've seen the tech ecosystem evolve since you first moved here to where it is today and what the big changes have been. It's pretty crazy to me that it's almost been 10 years, actually. Yeah, I came here, I was in Boston for a few years after college and then DC. And I think one of the things that I really loved about the Colorado tech community from day one was how collaborative it was. I think I went to Boulder Startup Week for the first time, maybe in 2015, was just sort of blown away by everybody's willingness to share and to collaborate on ideas and just sort of build for the community, uh, essentially. I don't know, over the last nine, 10 years, I guess one of the biggest things has just been the proliferation of other hardware companies, Scythe, uh, Amp, Tortuga, uh, Canvas that was acquired by Amazon, a whole bunch of new headquarters. I think this has been sort of the, the trend of Colorado big tech headquarters. You know, they acquire a local company, start up a, a new office here, but we've seen that with Uber. We've seen that with, you know, now I think Aurora uh, as their advanced technologies group got acquired. Lots of really interesting developments in terms of sort of deeper tech advancements coming out of the Colorado tech ecosystem. Yep. And obviously, you know, robotics is a, a strong suit of the Colorado ecosystem. Are there any other parts of the ecosystem either you know, stage industry or, or type of technology that you see really thriving here? Yeah, I think the climate ecosystem is really amazing in, in Colorado. Um, we've got some climate investors of our own and and it's been amazing to just see the the density of startups that they've backed in this area already. And I think it fits really well with the ethos in Colorado of getting outside and protecting the environment is certainly one of the things we love about recruiting here is that we are able to find a lot of like-minded outdoor protecting types to join the Scythe team. But there's just a, a amazing set of other climate-focused technology companies helping to turn the tide on climate change. Yeah. Jack, you mentioned recruiting. would love to, to touch on that a bit more. Obviously, you know, on the, the climate side, finding like-minded people, but how have you found just recruiting in general and are people moving here from other places and, and is it easy to get people to want to live here? It's definitely easy to get people who want to live here, uh, especially, again, the, the type of folks that we're looking for at Scythe who are really interested in protecting the outdoors, who are mission aligned with us. But I'd say you know, our teams come from about three quarters probably already in Colorado. There's just a great depth of talent here across the big tech companies, the other startups in the ecosystem, uh, and then about a quarter who we've brought from, you know, coast to coast and from around the world, actually, to Scythe. We've had uh, folks join us from California to Boston to uh, Germany, actually, uh, move here to the front range to build Scythe with us. Awesome. And, and Jack, you mentioned a few companies before, but if you had to pick one company here, uh, not Scythe, that you're particularly excited about, who would you say? It's a 
tough question. There's a lot of really exciting companies, like I said, both in climate and robotics. I guess I'll give a shout out to Tim and Eric over at Tortuga Ag Tech, who are doing some really interesting stuff in the robotic harvesting space. So Jack, I want to jump now into why we're here. Uh, we'd love to hear what's your biggest lesson to date that you've learned in your career. What's the lesson? How did you learn it? And what are some ways that you put it into practice in your everyday life? I think I'd characterize my biggest lesson, at least in the startup world, is just that startups are always a roller coaster and you really have to buckle up and strap in and, and take care of yourself to ride those ups and downs because they come really close together. And and it's just sort of a, a fact of life in the startup world that you're going to have some of your highest highs on the same days that your lowest lows come. And if you're not ready for that and you know you don't have a team that's ready for that, that can really throw you for a loop. What are some of the ways that you've prepared yourself or prepared the team to deal with that? I think one of the things I really lean into is providing people with uh, substantial amounts of context so that they can both see the really big picture, you know, the long-term vision, the big mission, understand what a loss looks like in the context of the overall business so that losing that one deal, that one customer, that one investor isn't such a big deal because they see the, you know, the depth of the pipeline of additional customers or of additional talent coming in and they're able to ride the ups and downs along with you. I think the other part is selectively not sharing all the context can help the team to to ride those ups and downs or to av avoid some of the ups and downs that as a, a founder you might have to go through. I think that you have to be really careful about. Um, you have to be really clear when you're going into that hole you know, around fundraising or whatever and not sharing about it. But sometimes I think as a, a founder, you just have to take on a little bit of that burden for the team to ride that roller coaster alone for a little bit before you jump back on with the rest of the organization. Yeah, Jack, you know, the, what you mentioned on fundraising resonates with me. We made a mistake with my company, with our first fundraise, I think, of being overly transparent with the company as to how the process was going, right? And, and as, as you know, most investors say no, right, at the end of the day. And, and you, but you only need one to say yes, right? Exactly. And it only takes one. That's my mantra in fundraising. And as founders, you, you, you get that. And I think you understand that. But if you share that with your, your team, right, every time we heard a no or we weren't there yet, right, on a term sheet, the company reacted so, so strongly and negatively, right? And I think it goes exactly to your point of figuring out how to manage the team's emotions with what to be transparent about and when and, and when to actually sort of be the shock absorber yourself, right, for yeah. that information. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm definitely still working on, on my process for doing this, but try and be as transparent as possible in the lead into the fundraising, show the materials, show, you know, share what we're going after, what type of investors, even who the investor list is. And then on day one of kickoff, it's sort of, okay, like, see y'all in a few months, I'm going to go into a cave and sit in this uh, phone booth and just have Zoom call after Zoom call. And I'll let you know how it goes when we've got the money in the bank. And, and that, I think, has worked pretty well. It, it does, of course, lead to a lot of questions of like, hey, how's it going and vague answers um, that I hate doing. I, I love being transparent with the team. And I think in 
most other and pretty much every other scenario, giving the team more information, more context helps them make better decisions. But yeah, there are these times where you just have to be that shock absorber. I think that's a great analogy uh, for the team so that they can keep on on doing their work. And I, I think that's actually one of the most interesting things, you know, uh, talking with investors, just that I've seen change over the last four and a half years is when I go to fundraise, now the business barely slows down, which is amazing. You know, in the, the first couple of fundraises, the business basically ground to a halt because it was just the founders and we were all fundraising. <laughs> and now we've got 45 other people and things just keep trucking. Robots go out into the field, robots get built, software gets pushed. It's amazing. Yep. Yeah, Jack, it's funny you mentioned that. We often sort of see that with companies that raise their seed round is sort of the, the three months after they close their round, it's like, you know, kind of flat, right? And it's because, well, of course, the founders were, you know, all out fundraising, right, as opposed to selling for the prior three, four months. Um, so let's switch from how you manage the company to let's talk about how, you know, through those ups and downs, you've learned to manage yourself. You know, one of the lessons I had to learn with my company is, uh, in those ups and downs, the the good is never as good as it quite seems, and the bad's never as bad as it, it seems in the moment. Um, how have you learned to manage your own emotions and own self through those ups and downs? Yeah, I think that's a huge part of it is just seeing it in the broader context of that long-term trajectory of the company, of that one big win, you got to sort of uh, moderate a little bit in your head and that big loss, you got to put it in the context of whatever the latest big win that you probably had hours earlier was. Um, but I, I think a few of the strategies I've used, you know, getting outside, getting on the ski slopes or on a bike or going for a hike, a uh, really good way to clear my head, gotten more uh, irregularly, but somewhat into meditation over the last few years. And I found that to be a really strong tool in my uh, sort of toolkit to to keep my head on straight. Um, and I think one of the things, I don't know if I heard it on a podcast or read it in a book, but like feeling your emotions and then moving on is a really big thing, whether that's like, you know, yelling into a pillow or jamming out uh, your favorite sort of pump up track uh, when something good happens, like really embrace that emotion when it happens, don't bury it, but then acknowledge it and move along. And I, that's helped me a lot to sort of incorporate the learnings from whether it was a win or a loss, um, but get right back down to business and, and just keep trucking after that. So Jack, you know, one thing we found from feedback is that what our listeners love the most is like a specific example or specific story. Could you maybe share one of your lowest lows on this journey? What was it? How did you feel in the moment? But then how did you respond and and move on from it? It's hard for me to think of an exact example, but just going back to fundraising, because I think that's the you know, the source of so many highs and so many lows we had during our series A, we had a partner pitch with a big name firm. We were super stoked about it. We had an internal, really strong champion there, showed up to the partner pitch over Zoom because it was in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, they probably had 35 people on this call, whole team, felt like it went pretty well uh, and got a pretty crushing no. Maybe a day later where basically 
I was told they didn't think I was up to snuff was uh, essentially the feedback, right? It's always sort of couched in <laughs> nicer language, but uh, that that was that hurt. Um, but within, I think it was maybe 24 hours, we got an introduction to the amazing firm that ended up leading our Series A. We went from meeting them to term sheet in a week and a half, I think. Um, it just really clicked on both sides of the equation at the new firm and Inspired Capital. They've been with us now for two years, uh, awesome partners. And that's you know one example, but every fundraise is just that ad infinitum <laughs> uh, over and over and over again. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's been my experience, Jack, in, you know, business overall and, and fundraising obviously is maybe one of the more intense examples of that emotional roller coaster is that it's always darkest before the dawn, right? Don't get too high, don't get too low. But unfortunately, this, it's one of those things that I think you have to live through yourself. It's not something you can just tell, tell someone else because of course, if you're fundraising, for example, you get that first meeting and the, the, the firm seems super interested. It's hard not to get so jazzed and we've got this nailed, right? But, oh, but yeah. it, it just comes with experience. I think the other thing I do for myself, and this is, again, particularly poignant in fundraising because it's so prominent in the tech press, is to take everybody else's stories with a grain of salt <laughs> because it's it's hard to find a really honest rundown of what a fundraise process was. You know, you see people who are like, oh, my God, I had to have 11 phone calls before I got that one yes for my $12 million seed round. And you're just kind of like, Fuck you. I don't believe that at all. <laughs> like, you know, our our fundraisers have been the same number of no's for every yes over and over again, and it's not 12. And again, across the board, whether that's product development or how fast closing a customer goes, it's really hard to take the popular narrative and use that as a benchmark for yourself because it's hard to live up to the one story that gets cherry picked and put into an article on TechCrunch. Absolutely. I, I think that's been... Uh, you know, feedback we try to give to founders, Jack, I, I love that, is that, you know, what the tech press will pick and what good fodder for that are often the outliers, right? And it's hard to say um, why that company raised that crazy round at that crazy valuation, but that's not how things work for 99% of everybody else. Right. And outliers, not necessarily in the outliers of who actually creates the venture returns or the successful right. businesses, just the outlier and what the interesting story on a fundraise was or on a launch party or whatever it was doesn't have any correlation to the success of the business long term. Yeah. Yeah. Jack, I, I've often described you're being successful building a company if you take two steps forward for every 1.9 you take back. Right. Yeah, right on. And that's the pace it actually feels like you move at, right? And it, it almost never feels like you're running downhill for a long period of time. Yep, totally, totally agree with that. And I, I think the other big thing where I prepare myself is, or the way I sort of get through these things is, I think being prepared for the highs and for the wins and being able to capitalize on those when they come so you can embrace that serendipity, you know, whether that's putting yourself out there and getting to startup week because you never know what might happen and just being ready to find that great new hire. You know, we found somebody to just a small thing, but come and sublet half of our massive office space when we were 10 people in an 11,000 square foot office and really cut our costs there. And and then not, not overreacting if things don't go the way you were prepared for them to go. Absolutely. Well, Jack, thanks. This, this is fantastic. Really appreciate your time. 
where can our listeners follow uh, with what you're up to at, at Scythe? Yeah, you can find us at scytherobotics.com or on Twitter at scytherobotics. And I'm at Jack Morrison on Twitter. Not that I tweet much, but mostly you'll find robotics retweets there. Cool. Awesome. Thanks, Jack. We're all looking forward to having our uh, lawns mowed by robots pretty soon and, and hopefully uh, do all the work you all are doing at Scythe. So thanks so much. 